Well, we are just five days away from our annual theology conference. We call it Claris. This room will be filled, Lord willing, to capacity uh, for a weekend of singing and fellowship and mostly teaching from God's word on the theme of wrestling with contentment. So I thought it might do us some good if this Sunday we broke from our current series in 1 Samuel in order to prepare our minds and hearts with some thoughts on the need for contentment. I know not everyone here this morning will go to the Claris Conference next weekend, and that's fine. We don't expect everyone to. But hundreds of you will, and next weekend may be more effective on our souls if we begin now with well, with repentance and with prayer and also with some anticipation. Some of you here this morning haven't registered, and maybe you will after this morning's sermon. You should know we only have about 30 slots left, 30 seats, and then that's it. We're out of seats for this room. Um, so you'd have to, to do that quickly if you're going to, and maybe you'll decide to do that after this morning's message. But some of you won't go to the conference, and, and maybe after today uh, you'll resolve to listen to the audio or watch some of the videos of the conference sessions once those hit the web. Hopefully you'll see that this is an important topic and that we do need to wrestle with contentment. That's my prayer for us this morning, that regardless of whether uh, you go to Claris or not, we would all afresh see our need to wrestle with contentment, meaning that we're not contented people. We are restless people. We are good at grumbling. We're okay with grumbling, too. And so is the whole world around us. You know, from one angle, there's good reason why there is grumbling in this world, why there's discontentment in this world. Ever since the fall where Adam and Eve sinned and all of us followed in their footsteps, this world is not as it's supposed to be. It's a broken world that we're in. And grumbling is the loud, you could say public, dare I say preaching. Grumbling is preaching that this world is fallen and broken, that something around us, well, almost everything around us, isn't right. It should be inescapable that this world is not some Pollyanna dream world, but it's rough. And yet, from another angle, discontentment and grumbling are themselves part of what's not right in this world. In some ways, grumbling speaks truth. It's not right. On the other hand, it speaks sin. It's not right. It's proof that it's not just the world around us that is broken, but our hearts are broken. Our souls are broken. It's not just that wickedness is out there, and so we can't help but notice it, but wickedness is right here on our lips, and we shouldn't be able to help but notice it. So let's take a painful look at grumbling or complaining from Exodus 15 to 17, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Exodus, second book of the Bible, and we'll look at some verses from 15, 16, and 17. 
This is one of the longest, most concentrated portrayals of discontentment in the Bible, maybe only second to the whole book of Ecclesiastes. And as we look at this, we'll see Israel discontent and grumbling before the Lord, but hopefully we'll also see ourselves, or at least learn something about ourselves in our restless hearts. Let's also pray that we see from this passage healing and hope, not just sorrow and repentance and rebuke. And as we study this together, let's also, whether you're going to declare us next weekend or not, let us pray that God would use that conference weekend together to grow us in grace and truth and contentment and joy in him. From Exodus 15, verse 21, all the way to chapter 17, verse 7, there are five cycles of trial, sin, and provision. Five cycles. Really, there are only three stories. There are three scenes in those verses I just mentioned. But all told, there are five cycles of the same thing happening between God and his people Israel in the wilderness. What do I mean by trial, sin, and provision? Well, by trial, we mean that moment of need, that difficult situation. We see forks in the road for Israel. Will they go God's way and believe and trust and follow or not? That's a, a trial. And we see in each instance of these cycles, a trial is followed by their sin, their wickedness, their unbelief, their doubt, and then ultimately their grumbling. And then we also see in each of these scenes God's provision. How does God respond to the threat that Israel faces and the grumbling that they speak? He responds with provision, providing exactly what they need. So let's first get these scenes, these stories under our belt. That'll be the first half or so of the message, maybe first two-thirds of the message, and then we'll analyze and apply the passage under four different themes. That probably makes more sense if you're looking down on the sermon notes page on the back of your bulletin. But here's the first of these cycles of sin, I mean of, of threat and sin and provision. The first we could call it a trial of thirst. A trial of thirst. Look at chapter 15. We'll start in verse 21. It's the end of a, well, really a whole celebration after God parted the Red Sea and, and got his people free and destroyed the Egyptian army. Here's Miriam singing, singing this. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. A high point, no doubt, in Israel's history. But then, here, we turn a corner. A trial of thirst. Verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule 
And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. It starts with a trial of thirst. And what a big trial that is. We're talking two to three million people and their stuff, and hence their animals. They're in the wilderness. That's a lot of water that's needed. You don't just you know, put it in a couple of barrels on a couple of donkeys, and there you're good for the wilderness journey to come. No, they've run out of water. That's a big deal. Scientists today say that it takes about three days of no water to risk dying. And that's exactly how long they've gone from the Red Sea into the wilderness. It says that in verse 22. They traveled three days. It's getting scary now. Three days they come to Marah. The name means bitter, no doubt because of the water. The water there is bitter. It's not just indicative of the water that it's called Marah, but it's indicative of Israel's circumstances at the time, isn't it? Everything around them is bitter. They're in the wilderness. They're they're fleeing. They're, they're going to the promised land, yes, but they're a long ways from it, and, and there's no water. And so it's probably not surprising from our human perspective to read that they, verse 4, grumbled against Moses. Their question to Moses, what did you think we were going to drink out here? That seems legitimate. I can imagine myself saying, hey, Moses, what was the plan? Did we think about water? Because that seems kind of important. But what came before this scene? We read just a bit of it already, didn't we, in verse 21? He's triumphed gloriously. God has thrown the horse and the rider into the sea. What came before this just three days before this? was the parting of the Red Sea and the destroying of that scary Egyptian army. The miracle of the Red Sea and walking through on dry ground had just happened three days ago. And guess what happened one month before that? It was just one month ago that they left Egypt. One month ago since they saw the last of those ten plagues that God brought upon Pharaoh and all of Egypt. For not letting the people go. They should know, they should know that water is not a problem for this kind of God. Is it? Water is not a problem for a God who can part the Red Sea, and he's not, it's not a problem for the God who delivers the ten plagues to Egypt so powerfully and gloriously and easily. So what will God do? to these grumbling, unbelieving people three days into a wilderness journey? Will he destroy them? Will he rebuke them with divine, fiery tongue? Or will he say, 
Hey, Moses, go get a log. He does the latter. Tells Moses, go get a log. You see what he's doing here? God is gently reminding Moses and the Israelites about those wonders that he worked in Egypt. Remember that one of the plagues was when the river turned to blood with the touch of Moses' staff. Reminiscent of that, now God says, Moses, pick up that log over there and throw it into the water, the bitter water, and the bitter water turned sweet and good and drinkable, like Aquafina water, maybe better. Aquafina with a little bit of lemon, a little bit of sugar or something like that. I don't know, that would be good. It's good water. Then God preached to them, didn't he? Verse 25 and 26. You see in verse 26, he says, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, give ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. There's warning there, but there's also provision and care and compassion. I am the Lord, your healer. And then this story ends with God leading them to Elim, a literal oasis in the wilderness, verse 27. It has 12 springs of water, enough for everybody. It has 70 palm trees, enough for most of them. And and, and they're encamping right next to the water. It's not something they have to go get. It's, It's not just survival. This is plush. Trial of thirst leads to sin sin of unbelief, the sin of grumbling. And God responds not with judgment, but with kind provision and instruction. Secondly, now we come to the trial of hunger. A trial of hunger as we head into chapter 16. Look at verse 1. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. We'll stop there and we'll read on more in just a bit. Here we are about a month and a half after the miraculous provision at Marah. So a month and a half of oasis living and eventually God leads them out and eventually they run out of food. That's another trial and it's another big trial that that is Something we can relate to and understand. Being in the desert without food seems like a very scary proposition. Being two to three million strong with animals and hoping to survive without food in the wilderness seems like a very scary proposition. They say to Moses, we had plenty of food in Egypt. We had other things wrong in Egypt. Yes, we were slaves in Egypt. Yes, it's hard to make bricks without straw in Egypt. But we, we slept next to meat pots. I don't even know what a meat pot is, but that sounds good. <laughs> we ate bread till we were full. That's a lot of bread. 
I know my wife wouldn't let me eat that much bread. My mom sure wouldn't let me eat that much bread as a kid. They ate till their bellies were full with bread. If the goal is just to kill us, then why not kill us with our full bellies and next to meat pots? Why would you take us out here for us to die? Hmm. The whole congregation of the people spoke like this. Not some. Imagine two to three million people, maybe one and a half to two million adults, saying, Moses and Aaron, come on, what have you done? Then God gives Moses some insight. Look at verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, before going further, we should talk about this word test. So it's come up twice already that God tested them. That might sound like God is skeptical, maybe like God's harsh. Uh, it might sound like a, a nasty college prof who boasts the number of students he fails every year. That's not what we should think, though. We should think God is trying them, not testing them. He's not suspicious or skeptical, although they never pass any of these tests very well anyway. But God is teaching them. Think of, think of it in those terms. God is showing them something. One thing he's showing them is the extent of sin in their own heart. He's showing them their helplessness and their hopelessness. He's trying them that eventually their faith would be tried and true. He wants to show them not only their sin, but his provision and his persistent goodness. And that's what he means when he says, I've set this up that I might test them or that I might try them. Then Moses and Aaron speak to the people. Look at verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we? What are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Well, they thought their complaints were just horizontal, just to Moses and Aaron. Why did you bring us out here? How come you didn't think about food or water for us as we headed out in this place? Never mind that God has led them out. And thus, their murmuring is not to Moses and Aaron, even if they think it is. They're murmuring, they're grumbling. Their complaining is against the Lord. Against the Lord. Moses repeats it, verse 7, verse 8, and he'll basically say the same thing in the next chapter as they once again try to complain to Moses as if God isn't involved in any of this. Now this is so, so important. 
It's so important to see that God is behind the leading, the lack of provision, and the provision. He's behind the testing or the trying. This is all his plan, not Moses's. They know this. But it's so much easier to complain about people than it is about God. It's so easy to fool ourselves that our complaints about people or our circumstances are merely horizontal and we're not complaining to God. We're wrong if we think that. It's so important for the Israelites to realize this and so important for us. Today we can say, our grumbling is unto the Lord. Our complaints are complaints about God. We like to think that we're just blowing off steam. We like to think that we're simply describing this stupid person that's involved in our lives and causing us some havoc. We'd like to think that these are just frustrating circumstances and that's what you get in this fallen world and yeah, I guess God's involved somewhat, but my complaint isn't to him or about him. It's just about this stuff. But is he not sovereign? Are trials not from him, whether small or big? Is he in this world? Is it all of him and his doing? We know the answer to that. So we know that our grumbling is against the Lord, even if we like to think otherwise, and even if we forget that much of the time. Let's read on about God's provision. The second half of verse 10 Here's what the people do. They looked towards the wilderness and behold, here's God showing up. The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. You notice God keeps saying filled. They'll eat it to the full just like they complained about what they had in, in Egypt. And then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. This is what we call, and what later is called, manna. It's manna. Notice God's amazingly gracious provision. Notice again the cycle. Here's the threat. No food in the wilderness for three million and their animals. And they sin. They, they don't believe. They don't trust. They grumble. They complain. And yet God miraculously and gloriously provides. Look at verse 17. The people of Israel did so. That is, they gathered. They gathered some more, some less. They could gather as much as they want. And when they measured it with an omer, whatever, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. This is a miracle bread on several fronts. One, it comes down from heaven. It falls from the sky to the ground and then lays there under mist. 
but it also has some sort of expansive properties, apparently. Someone gets whatever they get, and that's enough. And it's no more. It doesn't matter how much a guy picked up. He picked up a lot. That was what was enough. That's what filled his belly. Amazing provision. Now, a third scene. Well, really the same scene, but another trial. The third is the trial of daily provision. Daily provision. Look at verse 19. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and here's what happened. It bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, we'll stop there. Here's the point. Do you see the temptation to rely on self here in this little cycle of sin? God said, you get enough for one day, and I will make sure the expiration date on this manna goes fast. Uh, It won't grow mold slowly. It gets worms and it stinks by the next morning every time. So it doesn't matter if you try to hoard it. It doesn't matter if you try to stockpile it or put it to the side, keep it in your pocket, put it in your bag. It doesn't matter. It's going away. And in the midst of reaping this blessing from God of this heavenly bread, they're maneuvering, they're scheming, they're wrangling to try to control the situation. They're trying to not live daily in trusting the Lord, but to see if they can trust themselves for tomorrow. God's provision is daily provision. It always is. It's miraculously so here in the book of Exodus. But it's also so for us. Jesus taught us to pray. Give us our day, our daily, give us this day our daily bread. Sometimes he gives us a whole lot more than that. But he doesn't need to. Anything more is extra blessing. Jesus told us, just look at the birds. Birds don't have barns. They don't need to. God provides for them daily. So what is true for animals is also true for humans and is all the clearer here for the Israelites in the wilderness. God wanted them to trust him and trust him daily. He wanted them to obey him even when it looked risky. So, God provides for us. By the way, God isn't calling every one of us to move out to the desert, to walk by faith, to throw out everything in the pantry. He's not wanting us to to see if we can actually live day to day for our food. God was, of course, doing something special at this point in his plan and with his people as he led them from Egypt to the promised land. But what God did with them and what he showed them was simply a heightened version of what he does. He provides for us daily and expects us to trust him for it daily. Which means that we shouldn't trust in our overflowing pantry 
for tomorrow's food. We shouldn't trust in that last paycheck for tomorrow's food. We shouldn't trust in a pretty good job or a better resume if we should have to pull it out. We shouldn't trust in these things. Our next meal doesn't come from these things. Our next meal comes from God, just like it did for the Israelites. It's just that in our case, God uses more common means of providence to provide us that next meal. But the next meal is from God. All right, now a fourth trial. Again, same scene, but a fourth trial, a trial of Sabbath rest. Look at verse 23. He said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, the Sabbath day, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left lay lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. There were no worms in it. That's a miracle, a reverse miracle. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. For six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. But on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. And no surprise, they found none. God gave the Sabbath as a gift It says that in verse 29, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. He provided twice as much food on the sixth day, and he provided this miracle that it wouldn't expire, get worms in between the sixth and seventh day, so that they had God's provision on the seventh day without even having to go out and pick it up. In fact, they couldn't go out and pick it up. They couldn't go and work on the Sabbath They had to trust God. But instead of seeing it as an extra opportunity to trust God, instead of seeing it as another opportunity for God to shine, instead they saw it as threat, maybe, or unreasonable limitation, or whatever. But they disobeyed. Notice that verse 31, by the way, describes this manna like this, coriander seed, white. The taste of it was like wafers made with honey. It was good. It wasn't that gluten-free, everything-free wafer crap that you get at Vitamin Cottage. (laughs) Remember, too, he made the water that was bitter sweet. God's provision is not just daily, It's not just sufficient. It's not just steady. It's not just constant. It's sweet, good. Isn't it amazing that food tastes good? Most food tastes good, or some food tastes good. But but a lot of food tastes good. That's amazing to us. It should be. Spurgeon said, God could have made everything we see an eyesore. He could have made everything we hear a discord. He could have made everything we smell a stench, everything we taste bitter, everything we touched a prick. And he didn't. That's amazing. Marvel at his 
common grace. One more scene, one more cycle of trial, sin, and provision now in chapter 17. It's the trial of thirst again. Take two. Look at chapter 17 with me. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled, now a heightened word, with Moses, and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Remember, the Lord was testing them. Now it's reversed. They're testing the Lord. But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. Because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Fifth verse, same as the first. The same thing going on here again, isn't it? Trial, unbelief, grumbling, and the Lord providing. It keeps going. It goes all the way into Numbers. You want to read this in Numbers. It's fascinating. Numbers 4, Numbers 11, 14, 16. Eventually, God wipes out about 20,000 of them for this. But it's amazing how patient he is. We would not be so patient. We aren't this patient. Now, let's turn a corner. Let's think of four themes for analysis and application. Four themes for analysis and application. We've seen the stories, right? We've seen five cycles of, of threat and sin and, and then God providing. But how should we apply it and think about this as it relates to sin and our lives and, and the grand scheme of God's plan? Well, we should think first about the wickedness of sin, particularly grumbling. Grumbling is sin, And it is a particularly pernicious or malicious sin. Never mind that it's all around us. Never mind that we're all quite comfortable with that sin. Some of us aren't comfortable with that sin over there, this sin right here, that thing you see on TV or this word you hear. Most of us are quite comfortable hearing grumbling. Unless it just grates on us, and then we want to complain about someone else's complaining. Never mind that this is so culturally acceptable, even among Christians. Never mind that it's practically an art form on Twitter and Facebook. Grumbling is equated with rebellion in Scripture. Rebellion 
not white sins or light sins. It's equated with rebellion and godlessness. In fact, later on in this chapter of 17, verse 10, this group of complainers will be called the rebels. Here's what grumbling says. It says, is the Lord with us or not? Didn't we see that at the end of what we read? Verse 7 of chapter 17, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? The, the chapter doesn't record them actually saying those words. Maybe they didn't. Maybe their actions spoke louder than those words would have. They didn't need to say it. Their grumbling essentially said, is he real? Is he with us? Is he doing us good? Is he, does he hear? Does he care? And in that sense, all grumbling is unto the Lord. We may like to dupe ourselves into thinking we're just complaining about Moses. We're just complaining about Aaron. It's just horizontal. We may dupe ourselves into believing it's just a complaint about unfortunate circumstances, but no, it's not just venting. Our grumbling is saying, is the Lord with us or not? And if so, if he's with us, well, he better operate according to my wants and expectations. Isn't that implied in their question? Even if it's an unspoken question, is the Lord among us or not? Implied in that is if he's with us, we should see things differently than what we see. We shouldn't be tested like this. We should see bounty and plenty all around. It should happen now, not later. We should never get to the edge. We should never have to worry or cry or pray. God is sovereign. He's wise and he's good. He does have a plan and his plan affects all things. So when we grumble, we we imply that he doesn't have a plan or he isn't wise or he isn't in control or he isn't good or he doesn't mean to do us good. Grumbling says, this circumstance is not according to plan. And implied in that is, it's our plan. It's our plan and he should follow it. Grumbling springs from uncertain expect, uh, from certain expectations, from misguided assumptions. And those misguided assumptions are shaped by our world and by our own personal imaginations. We have expectations, right? It should go like this. It should be like this. I should have this much. I, I should have this kind of health or this kind of life or these kinds of looks. We must not be shaped by the world or by our own imaginations, but instead shaped by God's word and submissive to his plan. Grumbling is hardly objective. It hardly takes into consideration the grand scheme of things. It ignores a million blessings that God has done or is doing at that exact moment and focuses on one microcosm of reality and makes that the cosmos of the world. It's so not objective. I'm preaching this pretty well. You might be wondering, Ryan, do you, don't you ever complain? 
How are you doing with this? Well, horribly, horribly I'm doing with this. Yeah, I complain about everything. It's amazing. Sometimes out loud, mostly in my head, but but often out loud. I grumble about traffic. I live at Paseo in 25. I'm about to go pro at grumbling about traffic. I grumble at slow drivers or bad drivers. I grumble about slow checkout clerks thinking I could do better. I know I couldn't. In my son's hockey game yesterday, I was in charge of running the scoreboard, and I just blew it. I mean, there are like 15 buttons on this thing, and that's it. But I I couldn't do it. Yeah, I blew it. But, you know, someone else, if I was sitting in the stands and watching someone else fumble around with the clock and put up wrong goals and wrong penalties and forget to turn it on, I'd be rolling my eyes and making fun. At restaurants, I grumble. I grumble when I don't get the right thing, like the best thing at the table. I grumble about that in my head. I'm like, shoot, should have got what he got. I guess I'll eat it. I grumble about stuff I don't have. How petty is all this, isn't it? I mean, think about the Israelites. They were the bad guys in this sermon for a while. (laughs) We were sort of thinking, oh, you dumb people. But they didn't have water, and they didn't have food, and they were in the wilderness, three million strong. and, and, And sometimes God would speak, and sometimes you could see his glory cloud ahead of you, and sometimes not. I grumble about so much. I've probably grumbled about you. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) You know, we laugh about this, but I mean, we we should in all seriousness not let ourselves off the hook because everyone else does it. We should let this sin be seen in all its ugly and nasty hues. We should put our hands over our mouths this morning, at least for a moment, and weep in repentance for our loose tongues that besmirch God's glory and his name. God hates grumbling. It represents him in a thousand untrue ways. It represents him to others around us and to ourselves in a thousand untrue ways. It's rebellion. Our hearts are sick and desperately wicked. Who can know them? By the way, grumbling is a matter of the heart and lips. It's about words and hearts. And this is important because it'd be easy to to focus on the wrong thing. It'd be dangerous to think that you can focus on one and not the other. If we simply fight to restrain our lips from complaint and walk around with smiles on our faces, we may be just as guilty of discontentment and complaint. The Lord doesn't need to hear our complaints for us to show him our discontentedness. He sees our hearts, even if the world around us thinks that We're happy, shiny people. The Lord may know quite better. On the other hand, 
we'd be wrong and deceived to think that really all that matters is the heart. And God isn't a God of words. And, and he knows. He knows I don't mean anything by it, right? He's not, he's not picky like that. And so I can say some things that sound like complaint. And you might think it's complaint, but it doesn't matter. He knows my heart. He knows I don't mean anything by it. Hogwash. Grumbling is words, right? Just like taking the Lord's name in vain. That's a heart thing. And it's a mouth thing. We've got to fight at both ends. A second theme for us to apply is to see the purpose of God in trial and provision. God has purposes in trials and provision. And it's all over our passage. All over. God was up to something with the Israelites. And he provided for them not just to give them provision, not just to show off, and certainly not just to aggravate them. He didn't withhold his provision for a while to simply bother them or see if they could trust him. But look at chapter 16 and verse 6 and and see some of these purpose statements from God himself. At evening, verse 6, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of God. In verse 12, at twilight, you shall eat meat. In the morning, you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. God is teaching in all this, isn't he? The trial is not a a pause in the plan of the promises getting fulfilled. It's not a parenthesis in where this thing is going The trial is the plan. Oh, there's more to it than just the trial. But the trial and then the provision is God's present plan for the Israelites in these chapters. We like to think that a trial for us in our lives is something like a a step backwards or we're sort of standing still. We're not moving forward. Eventually, God will move us forward. Eventually, we'll take a step forward. Eventually, this thing His promises will progress. Trials are part of his promises. Trials are his plan. A third thing to apply is the only hope for grumbling sinners. The only hope for grumbling sinners. What is it? Is there any hope? Is there any hope for grumbling sinners like the Israelites, like us? You know, Israel was never truly content. You just read the whole Old Testament, and you'll see that again and again. Oh, they have a couple of bright spots, but really, it's just discontent all the way through. Same with us. No one in this world has ever been truly content. Well, except one. And he's the only hope for grumbling sinners. Jesus came as the only true and obedient Israelite. Part of what Jesus did when he came to this earth and lived out righteousness is he was a second Adam. The first Adam fell. Jesus, the second Adam, head of a new creation in righteousness. He came also as a a second Israel, you could say, or the final Israelite. He came as the righteous one, finally a righteous one. And so when Jesus goes into the wilderness, 
to be tempted. He's there without food, and he's hungry, and he's also tempted, tempted by no less than Satan himself. You want food? Turn that rock into food. He trusts God. He trusts God, and he's obedient. He didn't sin. He didn't doubt. He didn't complain. Even from the cross, he opened not his mouth. Even as he was being slaughtered, he opened not his mouth. No complaint. Jesus was obedient and content and trusting his Father perfectly on our behalf. Not just as a perfect example for us, not just to show us someone can do it, I can do it. God says, no, he did it on our behalf. His righteousness can be ours. His contentedness can be ours. His spotless record of never grumbling can be ours through faith. 2 Corinthians 5 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's why Jesus went to the cross, not just to show us an example of contentment and trust and not complaining, even in the midst of the most horrible of circumstances, crucifixion, but to die for sins and die in our place. We need both. We need his death to pay for our wretched sins of grumbling and disbelief. We need also his righteousness, perfect righteousness, perfect trust, perfect obedience to the Father. It can be ours through faith. We trust, we believe, we simply receive it as a gift. We simply call out to him and say, I desperately need that and that's my only hope. I believe you died in my place and I believe you'll give me righteousness because I, because I ask you. And I believe that because simply your word says it. If you believe that, you should know also that God in Jesus not only saves, but he satisfies. So listen to this. Here's Jesus in John 6, and it's reminiscent of our passage that we read from Exodus 15, 16, and 17. In John 6, Jesus says to the crowd that had just gathered, and they were hungry, and he fed them. He fed them to the full. He fed them with bread. And with meat? He said, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, not it, he, it's a person now, he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As gloriously kind and good as the manna of the Old Testament was, it was temporary. It lasted a day. And yet God sustained them. He saved them in the wilderness. He satisfied them in the wilderness with this miracle bread. But one comes down from heaven who's bread, and he's a man. And he fills, 
and he saves. And he does so eternally and perfectly. If we partake of that bread, we shall never hunger and never thirst. One last quick point then of application is the pursuit of God-centered gratitude. The pursuit of God-centered gratitude. If we believe that Jesus died in our place, if we believe that his righteousness is ours, if we believe that he saves and satisfies, then Christian, aren't we all the more motivated to flee complaints and grumbling? Aren't we all the more motivated to serve him with God-centered gratitude. Isn't that really the key to Exodus 15 to 17? God-centeredness? The right perspective on God? Isn't that what God was intent on showing them, though they were so slow and so stubborn to learn it? They had so much to look back on in the plan of God before, namely the Red Sea and the, the plagues of Egypt, and the promises given to the fathers. They had so much to look back on and use as binoculars for the future. How much more us? How much more us? We have so much of God's plan behind us, so much in the backpack to pull out and put before us through these binocular lenses to look ahead and see what will he do? What can we expect? What? How shall we respond? Oh, we should know if we're looking through the binoculars of his history. There's also an evangelistic reason to flee grumbling and to pursue God-centered gratitude. There's an important part of Philippians, Paul's letter in chapter 2, where he talks about grumbling or disputing. No doubt he has something like this passage in mind of Exodus. He says to the Philippians, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In other words, there's an evangelistic reason to keep our mouths shut to be free from complaint and only speak in gratitude and joy. There's a reason for it. It's weird. It's otherworldly. It stands out in this world. We Christians must not be conformed to the complaints of this world, but we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Transformed in this kind of way, everywhere we see, everywhere we look, Everything we think, it's gratitude. Uh, It's not what I would have picked. It's not what I planned. It's not how I thought he'd work. But it's not hell. It's not hell. Every day, it's not hell. What's tomorrow going to bring? I don't know, but I know it's not hell. If my hope is in Jesus and his blood and righteousness alone, that will stand out in this twisted and crooked world. May it be that God would let us shine like lights in his world. Let's pray for his help now. Father, indeed we ask for your help. We know you're strong. We know you're mighty. 
We know you're capable of not only working in circumstances in, in this world in, in powerful and miraculous ways, but you're, you're able to work in our hearts. You're able to give us faith. You're able or to, to bring conviction where that's needed. You're able to encourage the weak and to lift up the, the downcast. We pray you would. Help us, Lord, to thank you for the blood of Jesus and the righteousness that's ours. Help us, Lord, to rejoice that he is eternal life and bread that satisfies and fills forever. Help us to live in this world as your people representing you and communicating clearly that you're sovereign, you're good, and you're wise. Help us in our trying circumstances to know that you have planned it all and we trust you. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.